Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by special guest, Ed Murray. It's a little bit of an unusual Sunday. It's my honor and privilege uh, to invite Ed Murray to come and speak to us here in a minute. And he's going to be talking about, I think, some really important, timely, but heavy subjects. And so I just want to let you know that if you have young children, this might be one of those times where you opt out with them and then catch uh, the talk later. But I want to, before Ed comes up, repeat something that I said last week about how when unconscious vice becomes conscious, and this is a necessary process for change or transformation to happen, when unconscious vice becomes conscious, it can be a painful process. And this is true whether uh, we're talking about an individual or a country. And the things that try to keep the vices below the surface uh, will come in and and kick in and try to keep change from happening are defensiveness, blame, and self-justification. So as Ed speaks today, I ask that you would come to him and learn from him, as I will be, with an open mind and a tender heart. So I want to invite up Ed. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Take it from here. Thank you. Allison, Amos, Emily, and Tyler, I want to thank you for affording me an opportunity to share today. Vineyard friends, I love you. And for those of you watching and not a member of this faith community, come on in. These are wonderful people. Love to have you. You know, today I'm filled with hope because the love of Jesus. And on day 14 of the protest that are seeking to end systemic violence against black and brown bodies, we've seen the protest become more peaceful, more inclusive, and are already yielding kingdom results. Los Angeles County is reallocating $170 million from the police budget to the community budget. Minneapolis police are now banned from using chokeholds and neck restraints. And today, in Pottstown, a 22-year-old Black Lives Matter leader will host a rally that will be attended by probably more than 1,500 people, 8% of the population of the borough. You know, and I spoke with him yesterday, and he's committed to nonviolence. And even more, as we spoke yesterday, he said, Ed, I'm going to have the voter registration tables up because he's committed to democracy. So I stand here assured that for those trusting in Jesus for your eternal life, this is going to end well. You know, last week, Amos read the last passage in the Bible. So I started reading backwards, and I can tell you it ends well. Okay? This is an emotional time for me. And this is also the end of the series, I'm Okay. Next week, we'll be moving to Love is Greater Than Fear. And I hope this message kind of sits right there in the middle with I'm Okay, not 
and love is greater than fear. Now, this is an emotional time for me, so I'm going to read most of my thoughts. You know, at my worst, I can be a very angry, discouraged black man. And too much rides on today for my selfishness to overflow. You know, life groups, and I hope that if you're watching and you're a member of our community, you're taking advantage of these Zoom life groups. They're a fantastic way to jump in, and when we go to green, we can all meet together. You know, they're safe places to share stories and receive love. Corporately, we are telling our individual stories in our groups. And you know, what this has done is it's helped us to learn about each other. This morning, I ask ask that you give me some leeway to share some stories of the African and his descendants in America and Europe. These stories might be new. They might surprise or horrify you. And you know, that's really because history records the story of the victor, the dominant. For instance, the Thanksgiving story that is told by the indigenous Wampanoag people who were living in the area that the Massachusetts Bay Colony called Plymouth would tell the Thanksgiving story radically different than the story that I learned in grade school. So let's pray. Oh, your grace, Father. We need your grace Would you just fall on us? Would you fall on those watching? We need your grace in our world, in our homes, in our hearts. And Father, would you illuminate the words that I'm about to say, that they be to the glory of Jesus Christ, who is risen and living. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as a faith community actively seeking the kingdom of God, the dynamic rule and reign of God, the question before us today is this. Should you undertake the work of racial reconciliation beyond the passive, hey, I have a black friend whom I love, or I don't see color, I see people? While those feelings are admirable, They point to a post-racial situation that the U.S. has not yet achieved. They also keep us from understanding the system of racism that stops us from fully achieving the words found in the Constitution, that all men are created equal. In this country, those words are aspirational. This is the idea of perfecting our union. Hear the words of James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So I, like Amos, ask that you give me a little grace and that I pray that the the hellhounds of guilt and shame and fear are chased away by the light of Jesus as we talk. To help us answer the question, let's explore three questions that might bring us a little bit of clarity. Are black people created 
in God's image? Is God's provision, his act of providing what we need to sustain life enough, or should we seek more? And then is God breathing life, his Holy Spirit, into racial reconciliation at this time? You know, in the vineyard, we say we're a kingdom people, but we also say that we're looking to do what God is doing because that's what Jesus was doing. And through his spirit, we can sense this. So if the Holy Spirit is not in this, let's not pursue it. But let's see if he is. So let's turn to the book of Luke, specifically chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I'm working from the Passion Translation, uh, and we catch up with Jesus And he's hanging out with his disciples. So verse 25, just then a religious scholar stood before Jesus in order to test his doctrines. He posed this question, teacher, what requirement must I fulfill if I want to live forever in heaven? Jesus replied, what does Moses teach us? What do you read in the law? The religious scholar answered, it states, you must love the Lord God with all your heart, all your passion, all your energy, and every thought. And you must love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. Jesus said, that's correct. Now go and do exactly that and you will live. You know, Jesus turns the question around, right? And he asks the scholar to interpret the law. Wisely, the scholar recites the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6. You know, it's a prayer that is still said today by Orthodox Jewish folks, literally the Lord is one. And then citing Leviticus 19.8, the scholar notes the love he should have for his Jewish neighbor. However, the scholar seeking to trip up Jesus asked Jesus' position on the second part of the answer. And we pick up the text here in verse 29. So speaking of the scholar, wanting to justify himself, he questioned Jesus farther, saying, What do you mean by my neighbor? Jesus then proceeds to tell a story about the Good Samaritan. To paraphrase, this is a very famous story. You probably know it. So to paraphrase, a Jewish man is walking 17 miles from the city of Jerusalem to the city of Jericho. The man is set upon by bandits who take everything, including his clothes, and the man is left by the side of the road naked and half dead. At different hours of the day, a Jewish priest and a Jewish temple assistant each passed the man in the gutter, and both moved to the other side of the road to avoid their half-dead Jewish brother. Later in the day, a Samaritan, a person of both Jewish and Gentile other ancestry, they didn't get along with the Jewish nation comes upon the man. And we pick up the verse at uh, we pick up the text at verse 33. Finally another man a Samaritan came upon the bleeding man and was moved with tender compassion for him. He stooped down and gave him first aid, poured olive oil on his wounds, disinfecting them with wine. I don't really recommend that today, but back in the day that was like going to Paoli, uh, you know, the the ICU, okay? That so he was really taking care of him, all right? So he bandaged them to stop the bleeding. Lifting him up, he placed him on his own donkey and brought him to an inn. Then he took him from his donkey and carried him into a room for the night. The next morning, 
he took his own money from his wallet and gave it to the innkeeper with these words. Take care of him until I come back from my journey. If it costs more than this, I will repay you when I return. So now tell me, which one of the three men who saw the wounded man proved to be his true neighbor? Jesus asked the scholar. The religious scholar responded, the one who demonstrated kindness and mercy. Jesus said, you must go and do the same as he. Now in this story, the good Samaritan, born of the line of King David, I'm sorry, in this story, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's born in the line of King David and a Gentile prostitute, the other. He's scorned and avoided by the religious authorities, yet filled with compassion, he heals us. He gives us his most treasured possession, his life, thereby giving us peace, provision, and mercy by paying our debts. Now, friends, we could stop right here. The gospel has been given. But we must press on to see if we should be involved in the work of reconciliation. And why is that? The gospel forces action. God asked Abraham to go. God asked Moses to go. God asked his, uh, Jesus asked his disciples to go. The Great Commission asked us to go. The gospel forces action. In the story, Jesus defines for us who his neighbor is. Anyone we meet in need. My friends, the American descendants of Africans brought in chains to this country have been systematically beaten and robbed of everything we had. And as a collective people, we lay by the side of the road naked and half dead. Some of us just dead. And in the words of Eric Garner, we're tired. In the words of George Floyd, our whole body hurts. In the silenced, dead bodies of our sisters, Renisa McBride, who following a car accident, knocked on a door seeking help and instead was shot in the head through a closed door with a 12-gauge shotgun and the still, still uncharged case of Breonna Taylor, who was shot eight times in her home by unidentified, non-uniformed officers serving a no-knock warrant for a person who was already in custody. I thank God that their blood is crying out from the ground to the Father. And I truly believe that that blood and that cry is being answered right now. And that's why we're in today 14 of protests. That's why the protests are getting more peaceful. That's why the protests are getting more multiracial. That's why the protests are becoming international because the blood of our brothers is crying out from the land, and God is hearing it. Are you still with me? <laughs> grace, give me a little grace, please. This is tough. A martyr to the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said there is no cheap grace. He died at the hands of a Nazi execution squad. There is no cheap grace. 
Are black and brown people created in God's image? This is the very good or just good argument. You know, in the creation story on the sixth day, you know, in Genesis, on the sixth day, God makes wild animals, livestock, and creatures that move on the ground. And as he pronounced his other creations in day one, two, three, four, and five, he pronounces the wild animals, livestock, and creatures good. Next, God notes in Genesis 1.26, well, Moses notes what God said in 1.26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then to paraphrase, so that mankind may rule over everything we just made. And God pronounces mankind very good. If black and brown people are created in God's image, then by scriptural definition, we are very good, as are our white brothers. But how does white society characterize black people? Social psychologist Dr. Christina Cleveland writes, as individualistic Westerners, that's me too, right? Many of us haven't considered how our attitudes and behaviors are significantly shaped by our social environment. You know, we're thinking, We're independent. We're independent-minded agents who are unaffected by our environment, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. Dr. Keith Payne, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina, in his paper, Weapon Bias, notes, race stereotypes can lead people to claim to see a weapon where there is none. Split-second decisions magnify the bias by limiting people's ability to control responses. Think about Ms. Cooper. Think about Mr. Cooper coming out of the bush, this big black guy who was birdwatching. What did she see? Such a bias could have important consequences for decision-making by police officers and other authorities interacting with racial minorities. Payne's research indicates a systemic bias by police that black men are carrying a gun. Cleveland's research concludes our attitudes are shaped by our social environment. So what is the image white society assigns to black people and black bodies? Well, let's look at some images. So on the screen is Sarah Bartman. She is a coy woman. She was born in 1789 in what is today's South Africa, and she was sold and coerced to leave South Africa for England, where she was displayed in both London and Paris until 1815. She was paraded around in freak shows with crowds, paying to look at her large buttocks. She was raped, prostituted, impregnated as an experiment by her owner. Later, she was studied by Napoleon's surgeon as the missing genetic link between animals and humans. Her brain, sex organs, and spine were publicly displayed until 1974 in Museum, uh, Musée Dôme, Museum of the Man in France. Finally, at the request of Nelson Mandela, her remains were finally repatriated to the Eastern Cape just 18 years ago, 2002. From the Mabuti people group located in the Congo, Adabenga 
was four foot 11 inches tall. He was kidnapped from the Congo and displayed at the Monkey House at the Bronx Zoo in New York City starting September 8th, 1906. To enhance the exhibit, Mr. Bengo was given a parrot and an orangutan. And as reported by the New York Times at that time, the Reverend James H. Gordon, superintendent of the Howard Colored Orphan Asylum in Brooklyn, said, our race, we think, is depressed enough without exhibiting one of us with the apes. We think we are worthy of being considered human beings with souls. The mayor of New York refused to meet with the black clergy on the matter. And I believe on the screen is the Philadelphia Tribune. Uh, there's, a, there's a shot there of the Philadelphia Tribune, and that is a black paper in Philadelphia that covered this. In perhaps the understatement of his life in 2006, John Cavelli, Senior Vice President for Public Affairs for the Wildlife Conservation Society, which now owns and runs the zoo, noted of displaying Benga, it was a mistake. <laughs> like I dropped my water bottle. It was a mistake. This is 2006. When you reflect on it, he said, you realize it was a moment in time. You have to look at the time in which it happened and you try to understand why this would occur. Born in 1964 to a working class family in the city of Broad Shoulders, he attended a high school for gifted children, graduating cum laude from Princeton. She attended Harvard Law School and was awarded her Juris Doctorate, her JD, her law uh, credentials in 1988. Specializing in marketing and intellectual property law, she left private practice to work for the mayor as an executive director in, for public allies. In 1996, she became dean of students uh, at the University of Chicago. Settling at the University of Chicago Medical Center as vice president for community and external affairs, she later became First Lady Michelle Obama. Behind me, you can see a couple of photoshopped images of Michelle Obama as an ape. And this is a racist trope that was constant through the Obama years in the White House. All I did was Google Michelle Obama ape, and they came up. There's another image there of Michelle Obama uh, as a vampire. And I want to point out that this was a third right racist trope. Jewish folks were portrayed as vampires, sucking the blood from the German nation. We know how that ended. So you have to ask yourself, if black people are created in God's image, and thus very good, I also ask that right where you are, in your living rooms or later watching this, that you ask the Holy Spirit to show you what images you have assigned to black people because of society's bias. Now, a quick word about the police. It's a personal word. I try to avoid them. It's safer that way. I do respect that they have a job to do, and I was on a Zoom call just the other day with the chief of Pottstown Police, who was a believer, a lovely man, 25 years of service in the community. 
But there is a systemic belief in too many forces that they are the thin blue line between civilization and the jungle. And my black skin puts me in their jungle. As a believer, the line of demarcation for me is the wide red line. So wide it spreads as far as the east is from the west. It's the red line that purifies us, sustains us. It breaks men and women's hearts and helps us lead our best lives. It is the blood of the broken Jesus flowing from his body, nailed to the cross for my sin. The infinitely wide red line has nothing to do with the culture of scarcity that defines the supposed thin blue line. Now let's quickly discuss the culture of scarcity that permits systemic racism to thrive. In Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan, which we noted is Jesus, fully provides for the beaten man. The beaten man is all of us, white, black, brown, red, yellow, because we are all broken and have fallen short of the perfection and glory of God. To paraphrase Romans 3.23 and my mother Ruby Murray. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. As believers of the risen Jesus, if we're trusting in God for our provision, provision as he teaches in Matthew 6.31-33, then it's important to realize the gaming of the system to ensure capital, money, dollars stay in a selected group's pocket. Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project, have you seen this? This is the New York Times, big project, 1619 Project, notes that slave owners mortgage their workforce to buy more enslaved workers and land to increase their wealth. In the 1820s, state-sponsored banks bundled slave mortgages to create bonds. These bonds were sold worldwide so capital from all over the world was invested in the slave plantation system in America. So that's just not the South. That's the financial markets in London and in Paris and in The Hague. That's the financial markets in New York and Philadelphia. The combined value of these slave bonds exceeded the total value of all the railroads and all the factories in the United States combined. The enslaved workforce is, uh, in America is where the country's wealth was located. And to prove this, in 1790, there are 700,000 slaves of African descent in America. But by 1850, there are 3.2 million slaves driving an economy based on cotton. If you're a slave owner, you're making money at least two ways. You've got free labor working in the field, and you're leveraging the value of the labor in the field to make more money. Now, none of this money has ever been returned to slaves or their descendants. 
which makes a lot of sense when we look at a Brookings study. You know, Brookings Institution is a DC think tank. In a study entitled Examining Black and White Wealth Gap, that at $171,000, the net worth of a typical white family is nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family at $17,150. In, uh, in 2016 dollars. Gaps in wealth between black and white households reveal the effects of accumulated inequality, discrimination, as well as differences in power and opportunity that can be traced back to this nation's inception. The black-white wealth gap reflects a society that has not and does not afford equality of opportunity to all its citizens. Now, when I started here, I said that I am really upbeat and I am really leaning forward. And so some of the news, some of, some of this stuff that black folks live with every day might come as a shock to you. But, you know, uh, Tyler and Courtney and Indigo opened up with a song, God of Our Mothers and Fathers. I was on the call with a vineyard mother and father the other day, Bob and Penny Fulton. And Penny said to me, John Wimbers, one of his first sermons was about Mary, Jesus' mother, and that as Mary was thought of as illegitimate, the vineyard will be thought of as illegitimate because as Mary bore Joseph through the Holy Spirit. We're going for the Holy Spirit. And Bob said to me, I've been praying for revival for eight years. And recently, God showed me that revival can't happen if racial reconciliation doesn't happen. Well, I'm happy to tell you We're going to watch a video. And uh, to answer that last question, what is the Holy Spirit doing around racial reconciliation in the vineyard? Well, check out this vineyard from a few years ago. Vineyard Global Family, an international gathering of over 4,000 worshipers convened in Columbus, Ohio, celebrating our growing diversity as a movement around the world. During this event, a time of unprecedented repentance unfolded, guided by our Vineyard USA National Director, Phil Strout. There are Kairos moments in the Kingdom of God where we look and we just own our stuff. I just want to speak to any minority, any ethnicity that we have offended. If our African-American brothers and sisters of the vineyard. We just want to be able to look you in the eye and say that you would forgive us for words, for attitudes, posture, thoughts, to forgive us, our, our, our Latino brothers and sisters. When you, when, when you are the brunt of attitude, would you forgive us? We ask you for your forgiveness. We ask our friends from Mexico to forgive us. So Gina, why don't you come up? 
I represent something and you represent something. If you would forgive us, we'll, we can walk this out. This session of confession and forgiveness occurred between white leaders and representatives of the black and Hispanic communities in the U.S., as well as with African leaders. Other groups were mentioned, and the entire conference was called to love others who are not like us and to be a part of God's reconciling work between groups of people today. First Nation, indigenous people, exploitation, the list is so long. I'd like a representative from some of the Latin American countries to come up. Forgive us when we, we, we put on instead of listening to what is being asked. And this is just part of how this whole thing will be. We, we can move forward. To our African brothers and sisters that are here, if, if you would, if you would, would you come down? We ask for your forgiveness and to your lands and to your people, and would you relay this to those? And we forgive you from our hearts. In Jesus' name. Times of prayer ministry, welcoming God to increase our capacity to stand as a reconciling people amidst the challenges of today's world had a profound impact on our movement. I know the attitudes, the things that have been put on us ideologically, that has no room in the kingdom of God. But you have to press into that. You gotta, this is work. God, you're witness to every word spoken, every thought. And we pray right now, Lord, your hand would just rest on us. We still have more here, Lord. We have more business to do. We understand that. With foundations such as these, the Vineyard family in the United States has rapidly become a diverse, multiracial community of kingdom people, committed to growing in our love for the world around us across ethnic and racial lines. We have resolved that we are better together and are ready to face the future arm in arm. The Vineyard is growing to be a living reflection of that diversity talked about in the scriptures, where believers from every tribe, nation, and language worship and missionally act in one accord as a unified people. I'd like to invite Amos, our teaching pastor, back up. Ed, I want to just start by saying thank you. I appreciate your wisdom and your grace. Uh, and your words today. I could feel the Holy Spirit when we started worship this morning in a really uh, deep way, like God's presence was here. And so I, I have to believe that God met people today on the live stream as they were listening in. And so much of what you shared broke my heart. And But it, was, it, was, it needed to be said and we needed to hear. I really love our church. I've been so proud of our church and the ways that we've just responded in love and reacted empathetically and listened. And it, it just it has gone beyond the typical divides of political left or political right. Like I, I have I have seen people love these past weeks and I have seen just the effect of what happens when you take people who are so radically different and they commit to each other uh, in community? 
I mean, that it's unusual in our world. And like only in the church do, where we have Jesus as the center do the other things that are typically dividing lines fall down. And so we're going to do something we haven't really tried to do on a live stream yet, but man, we wish everybody was in the room. But we're going to actually invite you to come forward, not by stepping forward, but by opening your hands and inviting the Holy Spirit to come and letting God actually meet us wherever we are. So I invite you to take a couple of deep breaths. Come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, we need you. You know, as we were worshiping, I really felt that the Lord was uh, incentivizing freedom, releasing people from their past lives to step into to something new. And, and, and some of that could be recon, racial reconciliation, but, you know, the, the verse that I, I, I felt that the Lord was giving to me for you was, for if you choose self-sacrifice and lose your lives for my glory, you will continually discover true life. But if you choose to keep your lives for yourselves, you will forfeit what you try to keep. You know, during this time of COVID, the Lord is stripping away things. And I think he just really wants right now for you to be free. For you to be free to explore the, the wonders that he has for you when you leave your old life behind and you move forward. So if that's you, I just want to pray for you. And Father, we, we thank you. You know, you, you tell us you're always doing something new. And so, Father, I ask that for those whose this word resonates, that you bless them with fresh vision, that your, your word tells us that during this time that you will pour out your spirit and there will be visions and dreams amongst your people. And so, Father, I ask for that in Jesus' name. We just ask more of your spirit, more of your freedom. Amen. And I pray just against all the schemes of the enemy. Yes, yes. I pray again for us individually, but also as a country. Mm. And I got the sense even driving in this morning that, you know, people are not the enemy. Mm. Policemen are not the enemy. Mm. Our president is not the enemy. Black mm. people are not the enemy. White people are not the enemy. Mm. The enemy is the enemy. Mm-hmm. So increase our awareness of the spiritual forces that seek to torment and yes. enslave us to fear and to prejudice. and to self-deceit. Bring freedom today. And instead, increase our capacity to love and to listen. 
Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.